Welcome back to Portman 1, episode 2. This one, I'll be telling you all about a short story I wanted to write, but never finished. Um, so, I want to dive right in. No introductions needed. Who am I kidding? Cue the intro music. Portman 1. That was great. Uh, so, to start off, I'll explain the plot. And um, I'll, I'll read you what I've written so far. So I, I've outlined this in a document just with uh, the basic plot points. And since I've really only written a few pages of this, um, I'm fine just to basically read the plot as I've written it verbatim. Since it really doesn't matter, uh, I'm not going to be spoiling anything since it's not finished. Anyway, here we go. The plot. So, the main villain is a supercomputer that has died in previous lives and now is in this world. This is not yet Earth. The next time they die, they'll be in Earth. 2BX plus 1 is Earth. So, boy and girl and supercomputer are all on 2BX. And there is a sneaking suspicion from the boy that the supercomputer is responsible for his father's death. What the hell am I saying? You're probably thinking. So for for background on how this is all supposed to work is every time you die, um, you, you don't go to some afterlife. You simply wake up in your body on the next planet. And there's billions of planets, right? There's billions of worlds. And they all have their separate cultures and societies that are unique to them. So when you die, you're not, you're just leaving behind what you've made on this planet and moving on to the next. So they're on 2BX, which I explained is 2 billion and X amount of years. So we know that it's 2 billion planets from the start, from the origin. And we know 2BX plus 1, just sequentially saying that the next planet they go to, so whenever they die on 2BX, their current planet, They'll move to 2BX plus 1. And 2BX plus 1 is um, Earth as we know it. The Earth that we are inhabiting right now. So, um, the villain of this is this supercomputer who is responsible for tracking the consciousnesses of everyone on each planet and transporting them to the next planet. So, um, the boy and... So so there is also a, another aspect to this that I'm not sure. I'm, I'm reading this document for the first time in a while, but I think it's a really novel concept. Um, and it's that the supercomputer can die and then be incarnated on another world just like a human can. So, this supercomputer consciousness is on 2BX with this boy and this girl that I just introduced. Um, so, um, yes, so to summarize this, I've written a little bit I've just found in the document right here and I'll read that to you. Um, and this entire concept, I'd like to, I, you know, if you were to make some overarching name for this idea of being transported to different worlds upon dying, it's called Everdeath. 
and that'll be the name of the story. But reading now from my explanation of years ago, it, uh, it goes like this. The worlds of Everdeath each have their own characteristics. Some are destroyed by their previous inhabitants. Some have ritualistic cults that avoid dying at all costs to stay on their own barren worlds. These cults spread throughout every world, as when one of the members die, they try to start it in the next world. Imagine closing your eyes and waking up in a different world every time you die. Now, there is the question of whether old age should send you to the next world or not. It must, now that I think of it, or the causes would be illegitimate deaths, and then a child could die of the same underlying causes, but he would be sent to the next world because he is young, where if we said no old age deaths allowed, the old person could die of the same thing, but be pushed out of ever death. That's a very complicated way to say this. To summarize, I don't know why I wrote this like that. To summarize, if you die of old age, all copies of you die as well. So you are unlinked and achieve ever death. Okay? So you can still die, you can still be removed from this system, but uh, it'll only be from uh, your body failing you, not from the circumstances of the world. So if you're killed, you would move on to the next world. It's only your body removing you from the cycle by dying naturally that you would be removed from ever death and complete whatever cycle or whatever world you died on. So, I mean, musing off that a little bit, it's possible that you could die of old age on the first world, right? And you would never get to see the rest. Uh, let me read again. I wrote some more. So, there must be the threat of true Everdeath. Everdeath was not always around. There are countless other worlds and dimensions, but for the first thousands of years, humans just lived on E1, or the first world. That is now hundreds of thousands of years in the past, and humanity has somehow not evolved too drastically. The first humans to discover how to achieve Everdeath were scientists. It started out as a big machine, but then became a small quantum computer, later referred to as QC. QC linked every person to the infinite dimensional to their infinite dimensional selves. There is an infinite number of dimensions where the world is exactly the same. QC will link these infinite versions of yourself to each other, so when one dies, your consciousness goes into the next body. The supercomputer can independently decide to unlink you, meaning you are now on your 2BX plus one world of sorts. So stepping away from what I've written, just talking on that. So 2BX plus one is the last world. After that, there is no, there is no subsequent ever-death cycle. So if you died not even of old age, just if you were killed on 2BX plus 1, you would die forever. So it's the end of the road, basically. Uh, starting back to what I've written. Uh, the worlds all started the same, but children are born on other planets, and people do different things on other planets, so they all diverge from each other. Some planets are uninhabited because of what previous humans did. So, yes. So, so the rest of what I've written is more just for the author perspective of defining the characters 
and the major events that I think should revolve uh, the plot. Um, but now that I've explained the concept in 10 minutes, uh, I think it's a, it's a good time for me to now read the story. So, without further ado. She fell, and he followed, down and down the infinite pit, until they fell no farther at infinity's end. A blinking light faltered, and the tunnel was truly gone. She breathed, amazed she could breathe, in what was surely the afterlife. He smelled her sweat in what he thought was imagination. They grabbed each other in the dead and gone world. The rubble of the great tunnel most assuredly collapsing on them from the heavens above, and there was nothing else to do but hold each other at the end of it all. Winners die too in this world and all the rest. The sun was bright and hot on the Arizona desert, and loud following a bright blue car flying down a dusty road. The sun-worn pavement left the trail of their entry as less dusted wheel tracks. The radio boomed in the 76 Ventura with the windows down and hair flying everywhere. The landscape was mercilessly flat and stretched all around in cracked riverbed formations. The haze of the heat on the horizon blurred a distant black block of something in the distance. Or it was a rainy day and he still drove out to the desert. The cracks in the ground were all filled in, and the water bounced off the dry sand back into the clouds, where the thunder rolled for him, and he followed to her, every world. It was their destiny, between two lives entwined in ever-death. How they chased each other through the cosmos, there was no compare. No love matched the undying passion from one earth to the next. And he still chased, and she still let him catch her, forever and ever, and always, until the end of the story. It was foreshadowed by one illustriously devious QC, a paradoxically maniacal and life-giving supercomputer that linked everyone to their dimensions. Upon their death, QC would take them into the next world. This story begins in that desert, with him still chasing her, and QC somewhere else, not yet acknowledging them as the main characters of this spinning ever-death, a kaleidoscope of worlds and worlds. He arrived to her side, the engine hot and exhausted from the summer sun. She kissed him hard and licked the sweat off his lips. For her, he would come, and for him, she would stay forever and always. Story 1 on the day the world ends, a bee circles a clover. A fisherman mends a glimmering net. Happy porpoises jump in the sea. By the rain spout, young sparrows are playing, and the snake is gold-skinned, as it should always be. On the day the world ends, women walk through the fields under their umbrellas. A drunkard grows sleepy at the edge of a lawn. Vegetable peddlers shout in the street, and a yellow-sailed boat comes nearer the island. The voice of a violin lasts in the air and leads into a starry night. And those who expected lightning and thunder are disappointed. And those who expected signs and archangels' trumps do not believe it is happening now. 
As long as the sun and the moon are above, as long as the bumblebee visits a rose, as long as rosy infants are born, no one believes it is happening now. Only a white-haired old man, who would be a prophet, yet is not a prophet, for he's much too busy, repeats while he binds his tomatoes. There will be no other end of the world. There will be no other end of the world. Nebraska had cold summer nights, in this world at least. Clouds rarely ever passed overhead in the plains. The stars and moon were a second sun. But even still, it was eerie, having no lights, no cars, no nothing. But corn and cows for miles around. Those nights where the moon left behind the earth's shadow, you could only see the hand in front of your face, and only barely. But there would still be the sounds of the animals and beasts, foxes and coyotes, wolves. Always my following of you took me here, and the last world and the one before, and any world, I am sure. We pass over, always separate, and sometimes you are a thousand miles away, a different continent, perhaps. But still, my adventure to you takes me here, a small farmhouse in bumfuck Nebraska, where there wasn't a human soul but mine for miles. It's where I wake up every time I pass over, and this house is always the same. It must be damn old if it's here in every dimension. The horses are missing in this world, though. In the last five, ten maybe, there were always horses. Mine, I guess. Or supposed to be. I would always feed them the morning before I left and went to chase you, my sweet. There are no such horses to feed this time. For some foreign reason, I won't bother trying to answer. And yet, I am sitting in the same chair I always sit in when I arrive. I've been here for an hour, I guess. Have it. The porch lacks the worn-down look it normally has, and if I can tell you the truth, I've begun to wonder where the dear previous tenants have gone. Always the, for <laughs> Always the farmhouse is empty, but it seemed lived in well enough. I imagine that wasn't the case this time, in this world. It feels dusty, older, and no horses. I should leave now, and I almost do, but the thought of the horses stops me from getting up. And for a moment, your face, which has always persisted in my mind, is brushed away by the puzzle of these beasts. Either someone has taken them, or something very different has happened in this world that didn't happen in any of the previous ones. How many have we been through now, Maria? Fifty? I don't know anymore. The faces all blur together at some point. I have my car parked out front. My car, I say. But it isn't really. It's a figure that is almost as permanent as this house. Always there. Always working. And no one damn near close enough to have dropped it off. Ever death was easier when you didn't ask questions. QC seemed happier that way, at least. Gave you less shitty drop-offs. I sat on the front porch for what might have been an hour, maybe two, since I arrived. It was three in the morning now, and it's been the knowledge that the sun's coming up soon that tinges your decisions. I needed sleep, but I decided against it, silently agreeing to myself to leave at first sun. I got up from the rickety rocking chair that I'd occupied for most of the night, 
grabbing the ever-convenient Winchester from the table beside me, and stepped down the front steps of the porch, carefully feeling for each drop-off in the blanketing darkness. Nebraska was a flat place I had come to learn, and the one thing about flat places in the summer that you need to know is that heat goes up. With about four hours until dawn, my breath was freezing in front of my face, and the soft, warm dirt of the farm was hard and cold. It was August, and the corn planted in April was now over my head. Not that I could see it. A horse could easily disappear in there, not that they would go in willingly, but maybe they were chased. I walked to their fenced-in enclosure. Hay was out in the fields, untouched, and the gate to the grazing pastures was unlocked but it always was when I came through. These horses were fine stock, but who would have been here to steal them? Through the cold, dark night, a howl went up, and others joined in. Maybe ten, twenty wolves, I guessed, but probably a mile or two away. They always liked to hunt at night. I cocked back the lever action, listening to the sharp mechanical click as a bullet was loaded into the chamber. The hairs on the back of my neck began to stand up at that moment. The sixth sense told me that I should probably hightail it on out of that empty enclosure, and who the hell was I to disagree? I kept my eyes on the forest edge a couple hundred feet ahead of me, watching for movement of the blurry shadows. My feet moved backwards, slowly on their own, somehow knowing that eyes were on me right now, and any quick move might set those damn dogs off. I saw a sparkle out of the corner of my eye, Maybe a puddle that caught some starlight, but the ground was dry as could be. My head swiveled to the right, snapping onto where I saw something. In the trees, I could hear the faint snapping of tree branches on the forest floor, and my feet quickened. A howl went up into the night, closer now, certainly closer than the tree line. I could hear paws pounding the cold ground and heavy breaths waiting to eat. My instincts took over from here as I turned my hips and ran to the house. I was fifty feet away from the door when I felt a nip at my heel. I looked back and saw a wolf that had come up to my chest on four legs and let out an involuntary scream. The barrel of the Winchester seemed to move with a mind of its own as it swiveled around and locked onto the wolf's head. My finger pulled back and my arm slung with the flash of gunpowder. A whimper was all that I had to tell me the wolf was no longer a threat, but the muzzle flash had blinded me even more than the night. I ran to where I thought the door was, mentally checking to myself, 30 feet, 20 feet, 10, before stumbling into the front steps by some miracle. I cocked back to lever action once more as I stumbled up the porch and turned the doorknob to the rickety house. The door groaned as I opened it and dashed inside quickly closing it behind me. The crash rattled the old wood as I slid the lock in place. My heart was beating too fast, I thought, as I felt my chest heave up and down. Outside the door, I could hear the sounds of other wolves coming to a stop before a howl went up all around my house. It echoed out the flat plains and into the house. I ran up the stairs to a window in a bedroom I had never used. I could see 15 or 20 wolves pacing outside, occasionally loosing another howl. What the hell is all this for, QC? I asked myself. My breath fogged up the window, obscuring the wolves with every exhale. I slid down the wall and put my back against it, closing my eyes. 
Calm down, I told myself. He's just checking to make sure you remember him. And if he was really angry, you'd know, I assured myself. At that instant, a bang from downstairs made me snap my eyes open. I could hear heavy breathing from up in my room. I looked at the bedroom door that I had left open, now regretting it. I stood up from my position against the wall carefully, holding my breath to make as little noise as possible. Something fell and shattered downstairs. I looked out of the window and saw nothing. The wolves were patrolling out there and gone, maybe inside, but it only sounded like one to me. I heard the stairs groan as something walked up them and quickly went to open the window. I grabbed the handle and slowly swung it open, putting one leg out and getting ready for the next before being interrupted by a voice behind me. No need to run from me, Whitey. You just saved your ass. I jumped at the voice, nearly falling out of the window before a strong hand grabbed my arm. Don't go trying to kill yourself now or I'll have kill all those wolves in vain. I looked back at him, really looking at him now. He had dark, tanned skin, wide brown eyes, long black hair tied up on his head, and a pendant of a wolf hanging from his neck. He was dressed in leathers from head to toe, a real Native American cowboy. How am I going to believe that you just silently killed a pack of wolves right underneath me without me noticing? And who are you? I've never seen you in my previous jumps. He smiled at me. The corners of his eyes crinkled kindly. If there's one thing you need to know about me, Whitey, it's that... He abruptly pushed me out of the window, and I was still sitting saddled on. I tumbled blindly towards the ground a good ten feet away before he caught me at the last second with what felt like inhuman strength. My shoulder popped at suddenly stopping in the air. It's that I don't like questions. He let go and I fell to the ground. I rolled with the impact, feeling thoroughly confused and mistrustful with the new turn of events. I heard him move to jump out the window before turning around and seeing him land gracefully. Did you take the horses? I asked him as he walked to the front of the house. He kept on walking as if he hadn't heard. I followed behind him. He stopped by the truck that was always parked out front for me before opening the passenger side door and getting in. Drive, he said, before slamming the old metal door shut. I paused from where I was, thinking of what to do. This man obviously was the key to what was different around here, but he also might be dangerous. I walked to the driver's side and got in. Where to, I asked. He reached over and turned the key. The engine cranked to life with the diesel roar. Drive. I looked at him for a moment and he looked back at me questioningly. You got it, boss, I said, before slinging the gear shift into drive, turning on the lights, and taking off from the very different house. It wasn't until we were a few hundred feet gone that I remembered I had left my Winchester in the upstairs room. This would be the first time I had left the house without it and all of the jumps I had done, but it was also the first time the horses were gone, the wolves attacked, and the strange man appeared. So maybe... This was a jump of firsts. All right. Uh, thank you for listening for a long time. My voice kind of feels a little raspy now. Uh, I'm not made for narration, obviously. 
so I don't know how to end this. Uh, Portman one out.